Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, really excited to talk to Corey Doctorow, who's a science fiction author, activist, journalist, and blogger, the editor of Pluralistic and the author of young adult novels like Little Brother and Homeland and novels for adults like Attack Surface and Walk Away. Welcome to the show, Corey. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So today we're going to talk about monopolies. And the first question that I have for you is how big of a problem are monopolies? How concentrated are most important sectors? How, how concentrated is the economy as a whole? It's a very uh, serious problem. It's something that has grown worse over the last 40 years due to a, a change in policy that we can delve into where we, we basically turned off antitrust law for 40 years and we got a bunch of monopolies, which seems like a pretty predictable outcome. Most industries are, are now concentrated. And, and when I say concentrated, I mean between one and five companies controlling the output of the industry. So for example, there's only one company in the US that makes glass bottles at scale. Uh, there's also only one large electronic bookseller, and they also own the largest audiobook seller. There's one national cinema chain of any size. There's one national brick and mortar bookstore chain. There's two companies, uh, or there's one company in the world that makes eyeglasses, lenses, and insurance. So the same company that owns Lens Crafters and Sunglass Hut and every other Main Street eyeglass store that you know about also makes every brand of eyewear you've ever heard of from Coach to Dolce & Gabbana to Oliver Peoples. They also own Essilor, which makes more than half the eyeglass lenses in the world. And they own iMed, which um, is the insurer that underwrites almost all eye prescriptions. So it's just that's just one company. You know, whether we're talking about cheerleading uniforms or athletic shoes or banking or the film industry or the four major publishers or spirits or beer, really we're talking about between like one and four companies, one in five companies. Professional wrestling is down to one league. And in every one of these instances, we see harms across the board. So although in theory, the last thing that US antitrust law actually cares about is whether the prices go up, the prices absolutely do go up. So uh, nominally American antitrust enforcers are really interested if a concentrated industry starts to raise prices but to enforce uh, antitrust law against them, they have to prove that the, the price raises are a, a result of the industry concentration. And they have to do that using these very complicated mathematical models. And all the people who understand and know how to make those models are people who are great believers in monopoly. So they're, they kind of act as like uh, court sorcerers who whenever the king wants to do something controversial, they like drag an ox in and they, they slice it open and they spread its guts out on the, on the palace floor and they announce that the gods favor the king's plans. And, you know, if a courtier has the temerity to come up and say, I just don't see it in the guts, they go, well, look who thinks he knows how to read an ox's guts. You know, did you go to the Chicago School of Economics? I don't think so. And so we do see prices going up without any enforcement. And what happens is the firms that are raising the prices say that it's because their labor costs went up or because their material costs went up or the energy costs went up or, you know, the moon is in Venus. And antitrust regulators just credulously buy their word for it. But, you know, there are also harms uh, across the board to other kinds of stakeholders. So one of the things that antitrust law for the last 40 years has not paid any attention to and has not enforced against is instances in which a, a company or a sector becomes so concentrated that it can put the screws to its suppliers and its workers. 
And so we see stagnating wages and increasingly bad working conditions, as well as suppliers being forced out of the industry. And, and what often happens is that monopoly begets monopoly. So you see this in the healthcare sector, where uh, an early concentrated industry was pharmaceuticals, and the pharmaceutical companies started to gouge the hospitals. And so the hospitals started to consolidate so that they could gain some negotiating leverage, right? These hundred hospitals will not buy your cancer drug at the price you're asking for. We insist that you lower the price. And so the pharma company would lower its price. But once 100 hospitals had merged into one company, they started putting the screws to the insurers and gouging the insurers. And the insurers said, well, you know, we are going to start buying each other as well. And there was this orgy of, of autophagia where they consumed each other and became what we see now, which is the handful of giant insurers that structure the entire healthcare system in the US. And they were able to push back against hospital pricing. But there are two groups of people who couldn't organize, who couldn't become concentrated in this way. And it was doctors and patients. Doctors and patients uh, really got the short end of the stick in that deal. America has some of the worst working conditions for medical professionals and also the most expensive medical care and also some of the worst medical outcomes of any country in the world. And yet the industry is extremely profitable. And, and you have these uh, highly concentrated uh, pharma companies, hospitals, insurers, pharma benefit managers, and so on, who have kind of divided up the entire sector and extract these huge profits from laborers and users of the system. And then finally, there's the, the harm that comes to the general public, even people who don't use the, the company services, because when, a, when an industry dwindles to you know four or five companies or two or one, it becomes a lot easier for it to decide as a sector what its lobbying priorities are, what it thinks the government should do to regulate it, um, and how that regulation should be structured. And not only that, these monopolistic firms are very profitable. And so they have a lot of money to spend getting the government to do what they want. And so our, our policy, you know, the, the rules of the road, which are really important to get right because they govern everything from whether or not the medicine you're taking will kill you to whether the anti-lock braking systems in your car will kill you to whether your 737 max flight will fall out of the sky and kill you to whether you know your kid is going to be an ignoramus because it turns out google classroom is no way to run a distance education program all of these highly technical questions that we rely on the government to sort out for us because as individuals we just don't have the technical expertise to navigate conflicting claims about them, they get solved in a way that has nothing to do with the uh, public interest and everything to do with maximizing profits. And, and before I hand the mic back to you, because I know I've spoken for quite a while, I'll just give you a quick example of that. In West Virginia, although we think of that as coal country, the major industry in the state is chemical processing. And chemical processing is one of those highly concentrated industries. And Dow is the largest company in the sector. And the industry association for, for the chemical industry in West Virginia is basically a front for Dow. Uh, Dow really controls what it does. And the state of West Virginia opened a regulatory proceeding to figure out whether or not it should lower the threshold for enforcement against water pollution from chemical processing. The EPA, the National Environmental Protection Agency, had set a limit on how much runoff from chemical processing could go into drinking water how poisonous our drinking water could be. And Dow argued that although that limit might make sense nationally, that West Virginians were so fat and that they drank so much beer instead of water that you could afford to put more poison in the water 
because they wouldn't drink much water anyway. And if they did, it would be so diluted in their fat tissues that they wouldn't get sick from it. Now, this is, you know, scientifically nonsensical and, you know, gross, right? Just gross in every way. And it, it's the kind of thing that kills people and not people who are customers of Dow or workers of Dow, but just people in the state. And so when a company gets big enough that it has lots of extra money and when it has so few competitors that they can all figure out on a single course, a single course of action and, and mobilize against it, then you can see that our policies that we rely on to keep us from being you know, poisoned by our drinking water, those policies get perverted into things that maximize profits for a monopolist. I want to touch on a, another problem with monopolies, with concentration, which is fragility. Can you talk a little bit about why you're so worried about market concentration and our understanding of, of risk? Well, there's two ways that monopoly creates risk. So one is that um, in general, uh, as monopolists get bigger and as they're able to push around their regulators and as their shareholders get greedier and as they have less to fear from competitors, they become uh, less interested in having any kind of um, shock absorption in the system. You know, they, they are able to do things like squeeze their workforce so that they have uh, exactly as many workers as they need. They can send workers home in the middle of the day and stop paying them if things get slow and so on. And that turns out to be very brittle because if suddenly you need a lot of workers, you don't have any slack in the system. Likewise, these monopolists are able to command really good terms from their suppliers. And so rather than pre-ordering lots of parts and keeping them in a warehouse, which is kind of expensive, they just push their suppliers to do 24-hour turnaround on delivery, which is great unless their suppliers all shut down because of COVID or because there's a giant ship blocking the Suez Canal. Uh, and, and then they have no slack left in the system. And so that's one way in which it creates risk. And it's, it's a very, you know, sort of anti-resilient way to run a, to run a society. And as a society, we, we've taken all of the cash cushions that smaller companies might've kept around uh, for a rainy day. And we've dispersed it to shareholders because when companies get gobbled up by large companies, that's part of the ethic. That's part of what they do. Market concentration makes us vulnerable by creating monocultures. So whatever, when, when the whole industry is run by one company, then you don't get the diversity of approaches that are, are suitable and adaptable to lots of different circumstances. And the world's not static, right? We, we know that now because of things like, like the, the coronavirus pandemic, but we also know it because of things like wildfires, or again, like the Suez Canal being stopped up for a couple of weeks by a big ship. One of the things that we know from the uh, environmental sciences, from things like forestry management, or, or ecosystem management is that if you have a monoculture, right? If you only grow one kind of tree in a forest because you're, you're planning to log it, the parasites that attack that forest become uh, a diverse ecosystem. They seek out every single way, every single niche that they can have for attacking that one monoculture. And they attack it from every single angle, right? That, that the way that you meet a diversity of threats is with a diversity of tactics. And when we just have one company that makes eyeglasses, then it, then it has a single approach to making eyeglasses and a single way of retailing it and a single way of thinking about eye care and vision. And if the facts on the ground change, right? If the complex world in which eye, problem ex eye problems exist goes into a space that isn't contemplated by the business plans of that one company, there's no plan B. 
right? There isn't another company with a different approach. They're all run much the same way. You see this on the internet where we have these monocultures of operating systems and monocultures of, of uh, technology providers so that when there's a bug in, say, the SolarWinds management program that's used by systems administrators all around the world to manage their Windows networks, which all run the same operating system, one bug makes them all vulnerable to hacks. We see this with the ransomware attacks, where there's hundreds of strains of ransomware attacking a handful of kinds of operating systems. And so that's the other way in which, in which we become very fragile, very brittle, is, is not just because the management style of the monopolist is to take all the slack out of the system, but also that one consequence of that is you have a monoculture that has only one way of thinking about the world and responding to its problems. Two years ago, um, we had a an IT guy at my school. He he had built a system for us which allowed us to put homework up on on a portal and check email and communicate with each other. And he built it himself. And a few years ago, he decided to to switch over to Google Classroom. And you were talking about Google Classroom a couple minutes ago. And I was really disturbed that we were bringing Google into the school to run all the stuff that we had previously done by ourselves. But I was having trouble getting people, you know, up in arms about it because it works so well. So I'm wondering if you could talk about why, give me some, some talking points. Why is it bad to have Google Classroom running the show? Well, it's, you know, as uh, given those two polls, Google Classroom might be better, right? Because your very good technician is probably still not as good as the aggregate of all of the technicians that uh, Google has that that keep that program running and keep it secure. But that's not all of the possibilities, right? The thing that the thing that you made yourself and the thing that the giant monopolist made leaves a lot of stuff in the middle that that is excluded, right, from that calculus. And um, among the things that we might include would be a consortium of schools making a free open source tool that does the kind of management that you're talking about, that does the kind of content management and, and workflow management that you're talking about, that allows schools to customize it, that allows for the uh, evolution of cooperative best practices for securing and hosting it, but also allows for uh, modification to suit local needs and where the privacy policies and, and other policies that are really important in both pedagogically and ethically for, for use in a school can be set by at the school level instead of by telling Google what you demand that it does with the data as a condition of doing business with you and then hoping that it agrees with you and then hoping that it isn't lying, which is, you know, it's a far cry from just being able to make some policy. You know, we know that Google has frequently been found to either deliberately have misled people about its privacy practices or to have been so big that it just didn't know if it was collecting data, right? That, it, you know, its posture is so acquisitive by default that it, I don't even know if Google knows how to turn off the data collection. Mm -hmm. Certainly seems like at times they haven't known how to do it. On the far left, there are conversations about why monopoly is a problem, but simply saying, well, let's go back to, you know, sort of free market capitalism, because that's a great system, you know, is maybe the wrong approach. So I'm wondering whether or not, speaking of middle grounds, I'm wondering if it's not going to be monopoly capitalism and you don't, you don't want to go to some kind of wild free market capitalism, 
What's your vision for a, a, a just economy? Let me go back a step and talk first about what a transitional program to a just economy might look like, like why we might want competition, even if we, we don't think that free markets solve the world and all of the world's problems. Although, you know, I will say that, like, I think both the left and the right fail to understand what the term free market means. You know, in, in wealth of nations, a free market is a market free of rentiers, right? It's, it's, a, it's a market where nobody gets to extract rent from you while you while you're doing your thing right it's it's a it's a market with no passive income being produced so i don't think that that's what most people mean on the left or the right when they say free market and i and i think a lot of people on the left would be uh, a lot more interested in free markets if they realized that it started with abolishing all the banks you know and landlords and and uh and and um you know uh, establishing that uh either public management or or no management would be in charge of structuring how people conduct themselves i think that the reason that we should value competition and uh, disorganized sectors of smaller firms is that competition is another way of saying variety and variety is the key to self-determination Right, that that the the right to decide how you live your life. So take tech as an example here, where you know how you talk to your friends, what the rules are, what the moderation rules are, who can join your community, under what circumstances you might remove some of that community, and so on. That's a self determination matter, and the way that you get to the point where where you can set those rules and make those rules stick is to either have lots and lots of firms. Uh, that are offering lots of different things such that one of them is is pretty close to what you want or to be able to set up your own cooperative but then you need lots and lots of firms offering hosting or network services or something like eventually you need a variety of firms you need an ecosystem of firms so that you can find one that closely matches your desire for how you'd like to live your life and you know we want workers, you know, as uh, in the left, we reject Taylorism. We want workers to be able to organize their work in their own way and to not be scripted to the finest motion because not just because it's, it's like irritating to have someone with a, a stopwatch and a clipboard tell you how to tighten a bolt, but also because there's a kind of dignity and, and a kind of goodness about a life lived where you get to decide from moment to moment what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. It's not a kind of petty individualism. It's really about being able to, to, to be in charge of foundational things about how you live your life from day to day. And a disorganized sector of a lot of small firms is a sector that does a lot of things to lower its marginal profits to increase its market share which means that it doesn't have the retained earnings that it can use to bribe politicians to you know mm-hmm. break its union to look the other way while it breaks its while it while it breaks its union or while it hurts the public and so the firms are weaker and they're less able to capture their regulator they're also more subject to unionization now it was the case for a while after the new deal in the united states that whole sectors were really structured by the government right so the the a kind of aftermath of the of wartime reorganization of American production was that you really had the government saying to companies, here's what you're allowed to make, here's what you're allowed to charge for it, and here's where you can sell it. And here's how much profit you're going to make from it. And you have to, you have to like sit down at a table with your workers. 
And in that world, we had something called the large firm premium, where people who work for big automakers, unionized workers who work for big automakers, made more than their colleagues who were machinists working in small shops. But the large firm premium disappeared the minute that regulation disappeared. And the reason the regulation disappeared is because we let the companies get so big that they were able to buy their way out of regulation. So we need firms to be weak, even if it means getting rid of the large firm premium for workers. We'll get, the, we'll get a premium for workers through unionization. We'll get a premium for workers through um, uh, greater social programs. That means that they have more retained earnings because they don't have to put away money for uh, retirement because we have a good state pension system or we, they don't have to spend their money on childcare because we have universal childcare, whatever. The large firm premium and chasing the large firm premium was a mistake. So we definitely want the firms to be weak because that's how we make workers stronger. And that's how we make uh, the democratic management of, and oversight of, of industries better so that things like uh, polluting our way into a planet on fire is uh, much harder to accomplish because the regulator steps in and they clobber you and you can't, you can't fight back. Uh, IBM got so big that when the US government came after it for antitrust complaints in 1969, IBM was able to outspend the entire Department of Justice antitrust division every single year for 12 consecutive years on lawyers alone to fight that one complaint, the entire DOJ for 12 years and eventually walk away from that complaint with the company intact, right? We don't want companies to have the kind of retained earnings that allow them to fight regulation like that because then they get to run roughshod over the public interest. So that's why I think we should want competition right now, not because we fetishize the idea that you should have a million colors of blue to choose from in your wallpaper <laughs> or whatever, or, you know, that, that you know, it's the, the, the way that we solve all of our problems with the world is by letting you choose which corner of your screen the menu bar is in, but, but because technological self-determination is the precursor to a lot of other important victories that we're going to need to win. As to what a fair economy looks like, I think markets are, are not useless, but I think that they are of limited use. And I think the difference between a smart uh, person on the left and a, and a uh, drooling ideologue on the right is, is a smart person on the left goes, oh yeah, there are times when markets uh, and market competition can produce efficiencies, right? It can unleash people's creativity. It can make people think about new ways of doing things. Competition uh, isn't always wasteful. It can be. Uh, it can be energizing. There's a certain kind of person out there in the world who likes it. We just need to keep it under wraps. It needs to be competition within a within a wider structure of cooperation in the public interest. Whereas the right wing ideologue, when you say to them, "There's an important thing we need to do, and it won't happen with markets like a universal job guarantee or a green new deal," they say, "Well, if it can't happen with markets, it shouldn't happen. It's immoral." and you know, the, the, there's a great MMT economics professor calls himself the cowboy economist. He's, he's a Texan who uh, does this shtick on YouTube where he puts on a 10-gallon hat and a giant belt buckle and talks about economics. And he, he compares those people to a carpenter who, when confronted with two things that need to be joined together with a screwdriver, say, screws, screws are immoral. I'm a <laughs> hammer and nail man. Right. And I'm going to I'm going to put this thing together with a hammer and nail. And if you can't put it together with a hammer and nail, then by God, it doesn't deserve to be together. It should be a part, you know, <laughs> and, and we should be smarter than that. Right. We on the left should be smarter than that and say, if there's times 
when you need a screw, you should use a screw, but you shouldn't mistake screws as the, as uh, for the, um, the, the business of constructing things all together. Screws are a subset of all the ways you can construct things. They may ultimately be not the best way of doing it. We may learn, you know, in, in 10 years, we may have fasteners that are so good that they obviate screws. But, you know, there are things that are held together with screws today that are quite good and sturdy, and we might need to screw things together tomorrow, and they'll be quite good and sturdy too. But let's not mistake a single technique for a religious imperative. And that's a long wind up to saying, I don't know what a fully just economy is going to look like any more than Marx did. You know, that's the, that's the, uh, the, the TBD in Capital, right? <laughs> uh, the state withers away something, something, something profit, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I've written plenty of, of literature about, you know, novels about uh, different kinds of economic arrangements, post-scarcity arrangements, um, arrangements that are structured around uh, um, uh, addressing the climate emergency and so on. And that's probably like realistically the one that, that I'm, I'm most interested in because what a just economy might look like under conditions of non-emergency is very different from the kind of just economy we're going to have for the next 300 years while we address the climate emergency, right? For the next 300 years, we're going to have to figure out how to relocate every coastal city 20 kilometers inland in the face of extreme weather events, out of control, zoonitic plagues, and wildfires, right? Uh, we have full employment for every person who does live or will live for the next 300 years doing that work. We will face vast refugee crises of, of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people on the move as they lose their homes. And our just economy needs to orient our productive capacity towards that. And, you know, as a matter of technical speculation, I can, I, you know, I've got a novel coming out called The Lost Cause that's, that's about a post-Green New Deal world where this is actually going on. And, you know, they, they're able to do all kinds of really interesting things with technology that are, that's under democratic control. Like they had big factories uh, in the middle of the Mojave that turn out prefab, low clinker, zero carbon, solar-centered concrete slabs that you can build buildings out of. But the factories only turn on when there's so much solar that we don't need it for anything else. And when the sun goes behind a cloud, when it's rainy, um, everybody gets the day off, right? They, they, it's, it's like back to a, a kind of agrarian rhythm of making hay when the sun shines, except you're making high-tech urban infrastructure when the sun shines. And you know, it may be that the thing that's demanded of us in a, in a world where we wanna reduce our carbon is that we stop working when working has a high carbon budget. We already do this a little under capitalism, right? There's a lot of aluminum smelting that only happens when hydroelectric facilities are producing more electricity than can be produced, than can be absorbed by the grid. Uh, aluminum smelting is hugely energy consumptive and we stick our, our smelting plants next to hydroelectric facilities and they just scavenge unusable power, right? Because otherwise it would, the aluminum would be so expensive that no one could use it. And so, you know, we might just generalize that and generalize that into a life of leisure because one of the cool things you can do in a networked society when everyone suddenly gets the day off is, is organize a bunch of pickup games of Dungeons and Dragons or basketball or whatever it is that, that suits you. You know, it's the, it's the, uh, the uh, miracle of coordination that technology gives us that we didn't have before that made things like 
you know, the Soviet Union tried to rotate weekends around for efficiency. And it was miserable because, you know, your weekend day off was not the same as any of the people you wanted to hang out with weekend day off. And you couldn't figure out anything to do on your day off. And it was really awful. But imagine <laughs> if we had, you know, social networks whose job it was to help you spontaneously in a kind of playful and improvisational way, find a bunch of people to do some cool stuff with and have fun. And, and, you know, have a, have a Jubilee day, have a festival day because, because the sun went behind a cloud because now is not an auspicious time to be working. And, you know, by the same token, it may be that point to point air travel becomes something that is uh, strongly rationed because of the, the hard limits on um, how far an electric plane can go. Um, and so we, it may just be that long haul travel becomes really, really hard but, you know, maybe we then switch to doing things like getting in an airship and going wherever it is the wind blows it. And as soon as you figure out where that is, you find a social network that finds you all the people who are your kind of people in that city, all the friends of friends, all the great stuff, all the things your friends enjoyed. And you get you get a holiday that is nowhere near as scripted as the holiday that you might take now where you, you know, you land in Sydney and it's like doing the stations of the cross. I went to the opera house. I had some banana bread. <laughs> I drank a beer and I drank, I drank a comedy large beer. And instead, it's like it's an adventure. And, you know, it's a zero carbon adventure that that is all about the low cost of coordination under digital conditions and is and is about like hedonism and joy and leisure, as well as hard work and confronting trauma and confronting the emergency. And, and that might be our next 300 years. I mean, I certainly think it's quite possible. And, you know, I think the alternative isn't something better. I think the alternative is something worse, right? I think the alternative is just um, being buffeted by emergencies that we've denied until it's too late. And then being in a reactive posture with no resiliency and no uh, no slack in the system and just chaos and tragedy compounded by disaster compounded by tragedy. Mm -hmm.